Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. We have reached 2021. If you are listening to this, Happy New Year. 2021 is here, and with it, hopefully some hope for a better future for us all. And uh, like in Shawshank Redemption, if you're more like Andy, you think hope is a good thing, the goodest of all things. Good things never die. If you're more like Red, hope can be a dangerous thing. Um, And hope can drive a man insane, right? So who knows? No matter which side of the fence you fall on, we have arrived. 2020 is in our rear view. This is a bonus episode of criminal cases that were released uh, on December 22nd, 2020. We have a habeas case and three criminal cases. We'll start with the habeas case. Kelsey versus Commissioner of Correction, AC 42932, Judge Prescott. Here are your facts. In December of 2003, a jury convicted the petitioner of conspiracy to commit robbery in the first degree and felony murder. The court sentenced the petitioner to 40 years in prison. The appellate court affirmed the judgment of conviction on direct appeal, rejecting the petitioner's claims that the trial court improperly had admitted into evidence certain out-of-court statements and had denied his motion for a mistrial based on the state's failure to preserve and produce exculpatory evidence. The Supreme Court denied certification to appeal the appellate court's decision. After exhausting his direct appeal in August 2007, the petitioner filed his first petition for a writ of habeas corpus challenging his conviction. Following a trial on the merits, the habeas court denied the petition. The appellate court dismissed his appeal from the judgment of the habeas court by memorandum decision, and our Supreme Court thereafter denied him certification to appeal from that judgment. And so here we are, five years later, March 22nd, 2017, the petitioner files the underlying second petition for writ of habeas corpus that is the subject of this appeal. The petitioner raised seven claims not raised in his earlier petition. On May 9th, 2017, the respondent commissioner of correction filed a request with the habeas court pursuant to general statutes 52-470 subsection E for an order directing the petitioner to appear and show cause why his second petition should be permitted to proceed in light of the fact that the petitioner had filed it well outside the two-year time limit for successive petitions set forth in 52-470 subsection D subsection 1. The habeas court, Judge Oliver, initially declined to rule on the respondent's request, concluding that the request was premature and that the court lacked discretion to act on the respondent's request because the pleadings in the case were not yet closed. After the habeas court denied the respondent's motion for reconsideration, the chief justice granted the respondent's request to file an interlocutory appeal from the order of the habeas court pursuant to General Statutes 52-265A. The Supreme Court rejected the habeas court's reliance on 52-470-B1 as its basis for not acting on the request for an order to show cause and concluded that, quote, the habeas court's decision to take no action on the respondent's motion was predicated on its mistaken belief that it lacked discretion to act, unquote. 
The Supreme Court reversed the habeas court's decision and remanded the case to the habeas court for further proceedings consistent with its opinion. In accordance with that order, the habeas court, Judge Newsom, issued an order to show cause and conducted an evidentiary hearing. The only evidence presented at the hearing was the petitioner's testimony. The respondent chose not to cross-examine the petitioner or to present any other evidence at the show cause hearing. Court also heard legal arguments from both sides. Thereafter, on March 20th, 2019, the habeas court issued a decision dismissing the petitioner's second habeas petition. In its decision, the habeas court first set forth the relevant provisions of 52-470 and quoted this court's statement, the appellate court, in Langston v. Commissioner of Correction, that's 185 Connecticut Appellate 528, that good cause is defined as a substantial reason, accounting in law to a legal excuse for failing to perform an act required by law. The habeas court determined that the petitioner's proffered excuse failed to establish good cause under the statute stating, this is directly from the decision, the petitioner had until July 12th, 2014, to file his next habeas petition challenging this conviction, but he did not file it until nearly three years beyond that date. The petitioner's claim for delay was that he was sometimes in and out of prison and did not always have access to legal materials in the law libraries at times when he was held in higher security facilities. He also attempts to offer the excuse that he was not aware of 52-470. Neither of these is sufficient good cause to excuse the delay of nearly three years beyond the appropriate filing deadline for this matter. In support of its analysis, the habeas court cited State v. Surrett, 90 Connecticut Appellate 177, noted parenthetically that, quote, ignorance of the law excuses no one, unquote. On the basis of its determination that the petitioner lacked good cause for the delay in filing the successive petition, the court dismissed the petition. It subsequently granted certification to appeal, and here we are. Here's the claim. On appeal, the petitioner claimed that the appellate court improperly determined that he had failed to establish good cause for his delayed filing. The petitioner specifically claimed that the habeas court improperly determined that his purported ignorance of the filing deadline and his lack of meaningful access to the law library during some portions of his term of incarceration were insufficient to demonstrate good cause to overcome the statutory presumption of unreasonable delay. For the following reasons, our appellate court disagreed with Mr. Kelsey. First, the governing statute. The appellate court first began with a discussion of the governing statute 52-470 and discussed Kelsey versus Commissioner of Correction, wherein our Supreme Court engaged in an extensive discussion of that statute. The Supreme Court noted the legislative intent of the 2012 habeas reform, quote, the amendments to 52-470 set forth procedures by which the habeas court may dismiss meritless petitions and untimely ones. Specifically, subsection B addresses the dismissal of meritless petitions, whereas subsections C, D, and E provide mechanisms for doing so. Therefore, these reforms represent the legislature's recognition that in order to resolve meritorious habeas petitions in expeditious fashion, courts needed additional procedural tools to facilitate summary disposition of petitions that either failed to raise meritorious claims deserving a full trial or had been pursued in a dilatory manner. Our Supreme Court recognized that, quote, 
as compared to the procedures available under 52-470 subsection B to demonstrate that good cause exists for trial, subsection E provided significantly less detail regarding the procedures by which a petitioner may rebut the presumption that there was no good cause for a delay in filing the petition, unquote. The court noted that nothing in subsection E expressly addresses whether the petitioner may present argument or evidence or file exhibits or whether and under what circumstances the court is required to hold a hearing. If the court should determine that in doing so, it would assist it in making its determination. The only express procedural requirement is stated broadly. The court must provide the petitioner with a meaningful opportunity, both to investigate the basis for the delay and to respond to the order to show cause. That phrase, meaningful opportunity, is not defined in the statute. It typically refers, however, to the provision of an opportunity that comports with the requirements of due process. So therefore, the lack of specific statutory contours as to the required meaningful opportunity suggests that the legislature intended for the court to exercise discretion in considering the particular circumstances of the case, what procedures should be provided to the petitioner in order to provide him with a meaningful opportunity consistent with due process. Moreover, in the absence of any language in subsection E cabining the discretion of the habeas court with respect to the timing of the issuance of an order to show cause for delay, the Supreme Court concluded that the legislature intended that the court exercise its discretion to do so when the court seems that it's appropriate given the circumstances of the case. So here, our appellate court found that discussion of 52-470 had placed significant emphasis on the discretion that the legislature granted habeas courts to achieve the goals of habeas corpus reform, which included placing express definitive time limitations on the filing of an initial petition that challenges the judgment of conviction and on any subsequent successive petitions. Therefore, rather than creating a rigid, unyielding time frame for filing petitions akin to that found in ordinary statutes of limitations, the legislature chose instead to create only a rebuttable presumption of undue delay and to afford a petitioner an opportunity to avoid dismissal of untimely petitions by showing good cause. Consistent with our Supreme Court's analysis of the statute's meaningful opportunity provision and bearing in mind the goal of the statute to balance expediency and due process, the appellate court construed the absence of a detailed statutory definition of the good cause standard as an indication that the legislature intended the habeas court to exercise significant discretion in making determinations regarding good cause. The second subject addressed by the appellate court involved the good cause standard, and the appellate court provided an additional explanation of that standard, looking to the statute itself and other case law to help define the meaning of good cause in this context. Now, according to 52.470 subsection E, good cause includes, but is not limited to, the discovery of a new piece of evidence which materially affects the merits of the case and which could not have been discovered by the exercise of due diligence in time to meet the requirements of subsection C or D of 52-470. In the Langston case, the appellate court, after taking note of the sole express example of good cause provided by the legislature in subsection E, stated that, quote, good cause had been defined as a substantial reason amounting to in law to a legal excuse for failing to perform an act required by a law, a legally sufficient ground or reason. 
In the case of Schoolhouse Corp versus Wood, 43 Connecticut Appellate 586, which was cited by this court in Langston, the court applied a good cause standard in considering whether a party should be permitted to proceed on a late filing and noted that excuses that involved, quote, neglect, indifference, disregard of plainly applicable statutory authority and self-created hardship, unquote, would not comport with its de definition of good cause. In Connecticut Light and Power Company versus Lighthouse Landings Incorporated, that's 279 Connecticut 90, our Supreme Court, in discussing whether to exercise its supervisory authority to consider an untimely filed appeal for good cause shown under our rules of practice, similarly indicated that good cause must involve exceptional circumstances beyond the control of the party seeking to be excused from the deadline. The appellate court concluded that to rebut successfully the presumption of unreasonable delay in 52-470, a petitioner generally will be required to demonstrate that something outside of the control of the petitioner or habeas counsel caused or contributed to the delay. Although it is impossible to provide a comprehensive list of situations that could satisfy that good cause standard, a habeas court properly may elect to consider a number of factors in determining whether a petitioner had met his evidentiary burden of establishing good cause for filing an untimely petition. Accordingly, the appellate court determined that factors directly related to the good cause determination include, but are not limited to, 1. Whether external forces outside the control of the petitioner had any bearing on the delay. 2. Whether and to what extent the petitioner or his counsel bears any personal responsibility for any excuse proffered for the untimely filing. 3. Whether the reasons proffered by the petitioner in support of finding a good cause are credible and are supported by evidence in the record. And 4. How long after the expiration of the filing deadline did the petitioner file the petition? So the appellate court further noted that no single factor necessarily will be dispositive and the court should evaluate all relevant factors in light of the totality of the facts and circumstances. The appellate court then discussed the standard of review applicable to this appeal, which was a matter disputed by the parties in this case. The petitioner argued that the lack of good cause determination was a legal conclusion that should be subject to plenary review. And whether he established good cause is an issue of statutory construction over which the review was also plenary. The respondent, however, noted that this court had provided conflicting suggestions in prior cases regarding the appropriate standard of review and asks that the court take this opportunity to clarify that review of the habeas court's finding of lack of good cause and ask that it be abuse of discretion. The appellate court agreed with the petitioner that to the extent it construed the meaning of good cause as that term is used in the statute, it is a principle of statutory interpretation over which the review is always plenary, but it also agreed with the respondent that a habeas court's determination of whether the petitioner satisfied good cause is a weighing of the various facts and circumstances, including an evaluation of the credibility of testimony. Accordingly, the appellate court concluded that the determination invokes the discretion and is reversible only for an abuse of that discretion. So having provided additional guidance on the meeting of good cause under the statute and clarifying its standard of review, the appellate court next considered whether under the circumstances of this case, the court abused its discretion by determining that the petitioner had failed to demonstrate good cause for the delay. 
Here, the petitioner did not dispute that his second petition for a writ of habeas corpus challenged the same underlying conviction that he challenged in his first petition, or that the second petition was not filed within two years after he had exhausted his appellate rights regarding that previous petition. Further, he did not dispute that pursuant to 52-470, subsection D, subsection 1, the untimely filing of the second petition created a rebuttable presumption that that untimely filing was the result of unreasonable delay or that he had the evidentiary burden to overcome that presumption. Rather, the petitioner's argument on appeal was that the habeas court improperly made the determination that he had failed to satisfy that burden. The respondent countered that there was nothing in the record from which the court could conclude that the habeas court had abused its discretion. And accordingly, the habeas court properly dismissed the untimely second petition. In light of the standard of review and the record, the appellate court concluded that the petitioner failed to demonstrate on appeal that the appellate court abused its discretion for the following reasons. The habeas court provided the petitioner with an evidentiary hearing at which the petitioner could have prevented, presented evidence to satisfy his burden of establishing good cause for the untimely petition. Ultimately, the habeas court concluded that the petitioner failed to provide sufficient evidence to persuade it that he had rebutted the presumption, and the court properly took into consideration the lengthy delay indicating that the second petition was filed nearly three years beyond the deadline. The court acknowledged the excuses offered by the petitioner, including that he was unaware of the statute and that he did not always have access to legal materials. The court made no express findings as to whether it found the petitioner credible, but appeared to conclude that even if it accepted the excuses at face value, they were insufficient to overcome the statutory presumption. The court also prob properly noted that ignorance of the law was not a legal justification. So for those reasons, the appellate court held that the habeas court did not abuse its discretion in dismissing the habeas petition and properly determined that the petitioner failed to establish good cause, as the record sufficiently demonstrates that the court weighed the proper factors in reaching its dis decision and the petitioner failed to demonstrate that this determination was an abuse of discretion. Judgment affirmed. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Our second case on today's docket is State v. Irvin B. AC 41482 out of the Appellate Court, Judge Prescott again, officially released on December 22, 2020. Here are your facts. The defendant is married to the complaining witness. Her name is Wanda. 
On February 13, 2016, at approximately 3.40 a.m., Officer Christopher Smith was dispatched to the defendant's and Wanda's apartment building in Bridgeport to respond to a report of a domestic disturbance. Smith met the defendant at the front door, and the defendant accompanied Smith to apartment number eight. Smith found Wanda standing on the second floor landing outside the apartment. Smith observed that Wanda was bleeding from a stab wound to her right thigh and that she was upset, crying, and appeared to be in pain. Smith quickly called for medical assistance and for the assistance of a Spanish-speaking officer because Wanda only spoke Spanish. Officer Ariel Martinez arrived at the apartment and began to speak to Wanda in Spanish. Martinez asked her what happened. She stated that she had came home from a night out and the defendant stabbed her. She also stated that the defendant was going to continue to hurt her more. The defendant, who was standing nearby, did not respond to her accusation that he had stabbed her. At the end of this conversation, the defendant was arrested and transported to the Bridgeport Police Station. The defendant was subsequently charged with assault in the first degree in violation of Connecticut General Statute 53A-59, subsection A, subsection 1, and threatening in the second degree in violation of 53A-62, subsection A, subsection 1. Wanda was transported to a hospital for medical care where she received treatment for a serious laceration to her leg from a sharp object, and six staples were required, were required to close her wounds. At trial, she did not testify, and a portion of her hearsay statement to Martinez was admitted over the defendant's objection as an excited utterance. Following the conclusion of the state's case, the defendant made a motion for judgment of acquittal on the ground that the evidence presented by the state was insufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had committed assault in the first degree or threatening in the second degree. The court denied the motion in its entirety. The jury subsequently found the defendant not guilty of assault in the first degree, but guilty of threatening in the second degree. The court sentenced the defendant on that conviction of threatening in the second degree to one year suspended after four months and two years of probation. This appeal followed. On appeal, the defendant claims that his conviction of threatening in the second degree must be reversed because the state failed to present sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each element of the crime. The defendant specifically argued that the hearsay statement of Wanda relied on by the state to establish the existence of a threat only conveyed Wanda's subjective belief that the defendant would harm her in the future and not that any actual threat of harm was made by the defendant or that he intended to place Wanda in fear of imminent physical injury. The state countered that the jury reasonably could have inferred that a threat was made and made three evidentiary bases in the record which would support such an inference. One, the defendant had stabbed Wanda. Two, Wanda had stated that the defendant was going to, quote, continue to hurt her more, unquote. And three, the defendant who was present when she made that statement and identified him as her assailant had offered no denial nor explanation. In reviewing the sufficiency of the evidence to support a criminal conviction, the court, the court applies a two-part test, a well-known test. First, the court interprets the evidence in light most favorable to sustaining the verdict. And second, the court determines whether upon the facts that were construed and the inferences reasonably drawn therefrom, the fact finder reasonably could have concluded that the cumulative force of the evidence established guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Moreover, on appeal, the court asks whether there is a reasonable view of the evidence that supports the verdict of guilty. The court cites State versus Gray Brown, 188 Connecticut Appellate, 4, 
446. Let's get to our holding in this case. Section 53A-62 provides in relevant part that a person is guilty of threatening in the second degree when one, by physical threat, such person intentionally places or attempts to place another person in fear of imminent serious physical injury, unquote. The state, in its amended information dated October 11th, 2017, charged the defendant with threatening in the second degree in violation of that statute in that, by physical threat, he intentionally placed or attempted to place one Wanda in fear of imminent physical injury. Thus, the state was obligated to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the following elements of this offense. First, the defendant made a physical threat. and Second, he specifically intended by his conduct to put her in fear of imminent serious physical injury. The appellate court ultimately held that the evidence was not sufficient to support the defendant's conviction of threatening in the second degree, as there was insufficient evidence to support the conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had made a physical threat to his partner. The state's first argument. The appellate court first addressed that the state's uh, position that evidence that the defendant had stabbed Wanda supported an inference that a threat was made, and it concluded that the state presented no direct evidence to the jury that the defendant had threatened his wife either through words or some nonverbal expression with imminent future harm. The appellate court reasoned that just because evidence existed from which the jury could have concluded that the defendant recently recently had assaulted her, this evidence was not probative of any intent to cause future harm and cannot, without more, be held sufficient to support an inference that he necessarily made a threat of additional violence in the future. The appellate court cautioned that if it were to agree with such a position that any assault or domestic altercation in which a victim later expressed to the police some fear of future harm by the perpetrator would support not only a charge of threatening but ultimately a conviction, regardless of whether there was any independent evidence of a threat actually having been made. The appellate court reasoned that this obviously unjustifiable outcome demonstrated why drawing the inference that the state had advanced would depart from the realm of reasonable inferences that a jury permissibly may draw into pure speculation that cannot be a permissible basis for criminal conviction. The appellate court next next addressed the state's argument that the jury could have made a reasonable inference that the defendant had made a threat to Wanda on the basis of Martinez's trial testimony in which he described that Wanda had told him during the investigation of the stabbing incident. The state specifically directed the appellate court to the following colloquy between the prosecutor and Martinez. Question. Did you ask Wanda at the request of Officer Smith what happened? Answer. Yes. Question. And what did did she respond? Answer. Yes. Question. What did she say? Answer. She said she came home from a night out into the apartment and she was stabbed. Question. Okay. And when she came home, she was stabbed. Did she say anything more? Answer. Yes. She said that he was going to continue to hurt her more. According to the state, the jury reasonably could have inferred that on the basis of her statement that the defendant was going to continue to hurt her more, the defendant had in fact threatened her with imminent physical injury. The appellate court, however, concluded that the state's argument is unavailing and that the fact that evidence existed from which the jury could have concluded that the defendant had recently assaulted his wife without more was insufficient to support an inference that he definitely made a threat of future violence. As demonstrated by our Supreme Court's recent decision in State v. Rhodes, 
335, Connecticut 226. The, quote, line between permissible inference and impermissible speculation is not always easy to discern, but if the correlation between the facts and the conclusion is slight, or if a different conclusion is more closely correlated with the facts than the chosen conclusion, the inference is less reasonable. And at some point, the link between the facts and the conclusion becomes so tenuous that we call it speculation, unquote. In this case, the appellate court reasoned that in deciding whether the state had met its burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that a threat had been made by the defendant, the jury was not permitted to guess at possibilities or speculate that a threat was made solely on the basis of Wanda's assertion of her fear of the defendant. Although Wanda's statement to Martinez could constitute evidence from which the jury reasonably could have inferred that the defendant previously had hurt her and that she believed that he likely would hurt her again in the future, nothing in her statement to Martinez connected her subjective fear that the defendant would harm her again to any particular act, expression, or communication by the defendant from which the jury could have inferred the factual predicate for that fear. Moreover, nothing in the officer's testimony suggested that Wanda had complained that the defendant had made a threat to her, that the officers or responding medical personnel had heard threatening words or observed threatening behavior, or even that the police had inquired about a potential threat. Rather than resulting from any specific threat, Wanda's statement to the defendant that the defendant was going to continue to hurt her more reflected at most her fear that because he previously hurt her, he would likely do it again. Finally, the appellate court addressed the state's claim that the jury reasonably could have, in, have drawn an inference of a threat from the fact that when she gave her statement, the defendant was standing close enough to overhear, but he chose to remain silent, neither disputing the statement or offering any explanation. State cites State versus Leakin, 198 Connecticut 517, for the proposition that when a statement, accusatory in nature, made in the presence and hearing of an accused is not denied or explained by him, it may be received into evidence as an admission on his part. Terrible evidentiary rule, by the way. That, I remember learning that in law school and being shocked at the idea. Anyway, the appellate court, however, noted that the decision in Leakin also states, quote, the circumstances, of course, must, must be such that a reply would naturally be called for, even in the pre-arrest setting, although evidence of silence in the face of an accusation may be admissible under the ancient maxim that silence gives consent, the inference of assent may be made only when no other explanation is consistent with silence, unquote. In this case, the appellate court concluded that the jury was not permitted to speculate that a threat had been made solely on the basis of her assertion of fear and even assuming that the jury was permitted to consider the defendant's silence during his wife's statement as an evidentiary admission that he stabbed her, that could not be viewed as an admission of a threat or have more effect than acknowledging her subjective fear. The appellate court reasoned that as previously discussed in its opinion, it would be nothing more than impermissible speculation to infer that Wanda's fear was the result of any specific threat by the defendant rather than simply the circumstances of their relationship. And so here in State versus Irvin B., the judgment was reversed and the case was remanded with direction to render a judgment of acquittal. Congratulations, Mr. Irvin B. If you know 
someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut Trial Firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut Trial Firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. We stick with the appellate court for our third case, State versus Mansfield, AC41587. Judge Sullivan on the opinion, released December 22nd, 2020. Here are your facts. On the evening of November 8th, 2016, it was election day. Officer Leonard Penna of the Newtown Police Department was working a private duty job providing security at the Bethel Town Hall from 6 to 10 p.m. During this time, the defendant entered the town hall and approached a dry erase board in the lobby. The defendant removed several documents from the board and threw them on the ground and erased the information that had been written on the board. The defendant then entered the gymnasium inside the town hall where voting was taking place and the volunteers working the polling place gave the defendant a ballot. The volunteers requested that the defendant return the ballot, but he refused. The volunteers then called Officer Penna for assistance. Officer Penna entered the gymnasium and the defendant continued to refuse to return the ballot and put the ballot in his pants. Officer Penner requested that the defendant return the ballot to the volunteers and the defendant responded, I bet you would like to go retrieve them out of my pants. After the defendant made this remark, the volunteers allowed him to keep the ballot. As the defendant exited the gymnasium, he knocked over a basket of I voted today stickers. Outside the gymnasium, a group of Girl Scouts had set up a table where they were selling cookies. After exiting the gymnasium, the defendant took several boxes of cookies from the Girl Scouts and placed them inside of a bag that he was carrying. One of the girls began to yell at the defendant, and Officer Penna exited the gymnasium to respond to the commotion. Officer Penna told the defendant to return the boxes of cookies that he had taken, and the defendant responded by throwing the boxes on the table in an aggressive fashion. Officer Penna then began to escort the defendant to the exit of the town hall and as they walked down the hallway the defendant spat on a picture hanging on the wall. Officer Penna then contacted the Bethel Police Department. Officers Jason Broad and Courtney Whaley of the department responded to the call. Officer Whaley arrived first and she spoke with the defendant and attempted to calm him down. Officer Broad arrived shortly after Officer Whaley and he assisted Officer Penna in helping the defendant get into his vehicle while Officer Whaley spoke with Lisa Berg, the Bethel town clerk. The defendant left the town hall in his vehicle, and he was not issued a summons on that evening. Let me just stop right here. How many crimes has Mr. Mansfield allegedly committed up to this point? And he's allowed to go free. I I just wanted to express some frustration knowing how many clients that I've had over the last few years that have been taken into custody immediately after maybe saying something a bit disrespectful to an officer or to uh, another citizen in the presence of an officer. Mr. Mansfield here uh, appears to have committed several 
crimes and was allowed to drive away. Interesting. Anyway, back to our case. The following day, this is November 9th, Officer Broad was directed to complete a summons and issue it to the defendant at his home. The summons was for breach of the peace based on the defendant's conduct the prior evening. Officer Broad was not on duty on November 9th, but he was directed to complete and issue the summons because he was the investigating officer. Because Officer Broad was off duty, he was not in uniform, and for this reason, Sergeant James Christos of the department, who was on duty and in uniform, decided that he should accompany Officer Broad to the defendant's home and issue the summons himself. Upon arrival at the house, Officer Broad and Christos knocked on the door. The defendant answered. Christos handed the defendant a copy of the summons and requested that the defendant sign it. The defendant crumpled the copy of the summons, threw it on the ground, and then spat in Sergeant Christos's face. The defendant attempted to close the door on them, but Officer Broad and Sergeant Christos stopped him and took him into custody. The defendant subsequently was charged with assault of a public safety officer. Following a jury trial, the defendant was convicted of the breach of peace in the second degree based on his conduct on November 8th and assault of public safety personnel based on his conduct on November 9th. The defendant defendant appealed from these judgments of conviction. So let's talk about the breach of peace first. Regarding that conviction, the defendant makes three claims. The first claim is that the state failed to produce sufficient evidence to prove the theory of liability under which the defendant was prosecuted. Claim two, the state's theory of criminal liability rendered the breach of peace in the second degree unconstitutionally vague as it was applied. And three, the trial court misled the jury by providing an inappropriate instruction with regard to the definition of, quote, tumultuous behavior. Claim one, the appellate court first addressed the defendant's claim that the state failed to produce sufficient evidence to prove the theory of liability under which he was prosecuted. Statute at issue is 53A181, subsection A1, and the defendant claimed that the state failed to produce evidence sufficient to satisfy that statute's conduct element, which requires that the person engage in fighting or in violent, tumultuous, or threatening behavior in a public place. The defendant further claimed that the state's global argument that the defendant was guilty based on his collective behavior on the night of November 8th inappropriately framed the requirements of the statute. Because review of a claim of sufficient insufficient evidence involves statutory construction, which is a question of law, the appellate court's review was plenary, citing State v. Carolina, 143 Connecticut Appellate, 438. In interpreting the requirements set forth in 53A181, subsection A, subsection 1, that the person engage in fighting or in violent, tumultuous, or threatening behavior in a public place, the appellate court cited several Supreme Court decisions. Our Supreme Court has noted that the appellate court has held that violent, tumultuous, or threatening behavior means conduct which actually involves physical violence or portends imminent physical violence. That's State versus Indrisano, 228 Connecticut 795. Our Supreme Court has held that the terms fighting and violent lend an aspect of physicality. To the more nebulous terms tumultuous and threatening. Thus, subdivision 1 of 53A182, subsection A, prohibits physical fighting, 
and physically violent, threatening, or tumultuous behavior. The appellate court concluded that the defendant's argument was unavailing, although the defendant was correct in stating that a conviction of the breach of the peace in the second degree requires conduct with an element of physicality, the appellate court disagreed with his claim that the evidence relative to his conduct on the night of November 8th was insufficient to sustain the verdict. The court reasoned that there was ample evidence to the re in the record from which the jury reasonably could have concluded that the defendant's conduct on the night in question contained the requisite level of physicality. On election night, the defendant had entered a polling place, removed and threw documents and erased information on the whiteboard. He refused to return ballots. He put the ballot in his pants and he told the officer that he bets the officer would like to go retrieve the document out of his pants. He knocked over a basket of stickers. He took boxes of cookies from Girl Scouts and aggressively threw them when instructed to return them. And he spat on a picture hanging on the wall. Although any one of those isolated incidents may not be enough to satisfy the requirements of the statute, a conviction need not be based on only one isolated act. Accordingly, because the entirety of the evidence supported the conclusion that the defendant's conduct on the night of November 8th was physically tumultuous, the appellate court rejected the defendant's claim that the state failed to produce sufficient evidence from which the jury reasonably could have concluded that the defendant was guilty of the breach of peace in the second degree. The appellate court next addressed the defendant's claim that the state's theory of criminal liability rendered 53A-181 subsection A subsection 1 unconstitutionally vague as it was applied to him. The defendant specifically claimed that his conviction of breach of peace in the second degree should be overturned because the state chose to prosecute the defendant on a theory of breach of the peace fashioned by redacting from the statute language that is needed in order to avoid constitutional infirmity. In response, the state argued that the defendant's claim must fail because at the time of the offense, he reasonably understood that his, his behavior was prohibited by the statute and because the evidence sufficiently established that the defendant's behavior amounted to a breach of peace under the statute. Regarding this claim, the appellate court exercised de novo review as the determination of whether a statutory provision is unconstitutionally vague is a question of law, citing state versus Winnot 294 Connecticut 753. The appellate court acknowledged that the defendant's claim was one of arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, as he argued that by redacting language from the statute, the state rendered the statute unconstitutionally vague as, a, as it applied, but it concluded that the defendant's claim fails because the statute as applied to the defendant was not unconstitutionally vague. The proper test is whether a reasonable person would have anticipated that the statute would apply to his or her particular conduct. The appellate court reasoned that in this case, there was no question that a reasonable person would anticipate that 53A181A1 would apply to the conduct of the defendant on the night of November 8th. Accordingly, the appellate court rejected this claim. The appellate court next addressed the defendant's claim that the trial court misled the jury by providing an inappropriate instruction with regard to the definition of tumultuous behavior. The defendant specifically claims that by telling the jury that the conduct element of the breach of peace in the second degree required only that the jury find that the defendant engaged in tumultuous behavior, the trial court did not provide the jury with a viable theory of liability under which the jury could properly convict the defendant. In response, the state argued that the defendant's claim in this regard was not reviewable 
because he induced the alleged error or implicitly waived his unpreserved instructional error claim. In the alternative, the state claimed that the trial court's instruction was correct in law and sufficiently guided the jury to decide whether the defendant was guilty. Here are some additional facts to consider. The following exchange took place during the charging conference. The court asks, We begin with the charges, the amended information, breach of peace in the second degree. Prosecutor, there is something that the state has here, Your Honor, in the charging document. The state's only making the claim that the defendant engaged in tumultuous behavior in a public place. The court, so you're suggesting to excise fighting or inviolent. Those words, the prosecutor, yes, and or threatening behavior, and just leave tumultuous behavior, the court. Defense counsel, so the proposal would read, such person engages in tumultuous behavior in a public place. Defense counsel, your honor, I have no objection to the change. The court, so the state's position is it should read, so that such person engages in tumultuous behavior in a public place. The prosecutor, correct. The court, defense counsel. Defense counsel, I have no objection to the change, Your Honor. The following colloquy later took place regarding the specific language that the court would use when instructing the jury. Prosecutor, in the breach of peace statute, the element in on conduct says that the defendant engaged in fighting, violent, or tumultuous threatening behavior. We had earlier requested that the court take out all that language except for the tumultuous behavior language. Now, I find myself wondering if the tumultuous behavior has to be tumultuous behavior that actually involved physical violence or portended imminent physical violence. So I'm not going to ask that that be removed. It creates a higher burden for the state, but I'm worried about being reversed for charging inappropriately. Does the court understand what I'm saying? The court. I understand exactly what you're saying. And if I remember right, we went over this and agreed that tumultuous would remain and everything else would come out. Defense counsel. That's my recollection, Your Honor. Prosecutor. I just ask that the court and defense counsel, if either of you think that tumultuous behavior also has to be tumultuous behavior that actually involved physical violence or imminent physical violence, I don't want to excise something out of the charge that makes the charge bad. The court. Well, I think that the actually involved physical violence or imminent physical violence, there's really nothing in the record that would suggest the defendant was involved in any physical violence. Defense counsel. I would agree with the court, Your Honor. My recollection was that the prosecutor had asked for that extra language to be removed, and I had no objection to it being removed. The court then instructed the jury as follows. Element one, intent. The first element is the defendant acted with the intent to cause inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm. The predominant intent must be to cause what a reasonable person operating under contemporary community standards would consider a disturbance to or impediment of a lawful activity, a deep feeling of vexation or provocation, or a feeling of anxiety prompted by the threatened danger or harm. A person also can be found guilty of breach of peace if he recklessly creates a risk of causing inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm so that such person engages in tumultuous behavior in a public place. A person acts recklessly with respect to a result or circumstances when he is aware of and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that such result will, will occur or that such circumstances exist. Element two, conduct. 
The second element is the defendant engaged in tumultuous behavior. The defendant's conduct must be more than a display of mere bad manners. It must cause or create a risk of causing inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm among members of the public. Element three, public place. The third element is that the conduct took place in public. Public place means any area that is used or held out for use by the public, whether owned or operated by the public or a private interest. In summary, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, one, intended to cause or recklessly created a risk of causing inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm, two, the defendant engaged in tumultuous behavior, and three, it was in a public place. So, with all that, the appellate court first addressed the state's argument that the defendant's instructional error claim was not reviewable. The state primarily made an argument of implicit waiver, saying that the defendant had played an active role along with the state in limiting the instruction to tumultuous behavior and acquiesced to the finding that there was no evidence of physical violence. And the defendant had not only failed to object despite notice and multiple discussions about the charge on the record, but also voiced his agreement with both the instruction and the trial court's findings. The appellate court agreed with the state that the defendant had implicitly waived the claim. It is well established that unpreserved claims of improper jury instructions are reviewable under a case that we have discussed many times on the podcast, State v. Golding, citation again, 213, Connecticut 233. These courts have found that implied waiver on grounds including counsel's failure to take exception or object to the instructions together with one acquiescence in or expressed satisfaction with the instructions following an opportunity to review them or two references at trial to the underlying issue consistent with acceptance of the instructions ultimately given because allowing a defendant to seek reversal after his trial strategy had failed would amount to allowing him to ambush the state and the trial court with that claim on appeal, citing State v. Kitchens 299-447. The appellate court reasoned that in this case, the record indicated that the defense counsel had an opportunity to review the jury charge language and he acquiesced in the use of the language at issue. Also, the defendant's lawyer clearly stated that he had no objection to the removal of the language being challenged now on appeal and actually expressed his agreement with the use of that limited language over the state's suggestion in a reconsideration of its prior request that the language of the statute be used in its entirety. So accordingly, the claim had been implicitly waived as found by our appellate court. The appellate court next addressed the defendant's claim that the trial court's jury charge requires reversal as plain error. In support of that claim, the defendant specifically argued that an error here is plain upon the face of the record because the jury was left to its own understanding of the word tumultuous and was deprived of the judicial interpretation of the conduct element that is necessary to prevent arbitrary enforcement of the breach of peace statute. The appellate court disagrees, saying that it's well recognized that a party cannot prevail under plain error unless... It has demonstrated that the failure to grant relief will result in manifest injustice. Our Supreme Court has described the two-pronged nature of the plain error doctrine. An appellate cannot prevail under that doctrine unless he demonstrates that the claimed error is both so clear and so harmful that a failure to reverse the judgment would result in manifest injustice, citing State v. McLean, 
324 Connecticut 802. The appellate court reasoned that in this case, the first prong of the plain error doctrine regarded whether the trial court's decision to remove language from the conduct element of the breach of peace statute was so clear an error that a failure to reverse the judgment would result in manifest injustice. Although the defendant's claim hinged on his assertion that there is a reasonable possibility that the jury convicted him for bad manners, but not conduct that portended imminent physical violence, the appellate court concluded that no such reasonable possibility existed and that the trial court's instruction to the jury did not constitute clear error. In charging the jury as to the conduct element, the court specifically defined tumultuous as follows. The defendant's conduct must be more than a display of mere bad manners. It must cause or create a risk of causing inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm amongst members of the public. The appellate court reasoned that this language used by the court showed no clear error existed, as the court expressly states that the defendant's conduct must be more than mere bad manners. Accordingly, the appellate court concluded that the defendant was not entitled to relief on the plain error doctrine. That's breach of peace. Mr. Mansfield's fight on appeal also extends to his conviction on the assault of public safety personnel. So let's get to that. Now, regarding the challenge to that conviction, he makes two claims. The first claim is the state did not offer sufficient evidence to prove that Sergeant Christos was acting lawfully in the performance of his official duties in claim two. The court failed to instruct the jury adequately on the law governing police discretion to issue and serve a summons on an individual who has not yet been arrested. Claim one. As to this challenge, the appellate court first addressed the claim that there was insufficient evidence. The standard of review involves statutory construction. The appellate court's review is plenary. The statute at issue, and that's General Statutes 53A, 167C, subsection A, subsection 5, provides in relevant part. A person is guilty of assault of public safety personnel when with intent to prevent a reasonably identifiable police officer from performing his or her duties. And while such police officer is acting in the performance of his or her duties, such person throws or hurls or causes to be thrown or hurled any bodily fluid, including saliva, at such police officer. The appellate court noted, therefore, that the defendant's claim that the state did not offer sufficient evidence to prove that Sergeant Christos was acting lawfully in the performance of his official duties focused solely on the requirement that the officer must be acting in the performance of his or her duties as said in the statute. The appellate court then broke down the defendant's claim as follows. Sergeant Christos lacked authority to serve a summons upon the defendant on the morning of November 9th and therefore was not acting in the performance of his duties as required. The appellate court disagrees. The question of whether an officer is acting in the performance of his duty within the meaning of the statute must be determined in the light of the purpose and duty. The test is whether the officer is acting within that compass or is engaging in a personal frolic of his own. Whether the officer was acting in the performance of his official duties or engaging in a personal frolic are factual questions for the jury to determine on the basis of all the circumstances of the case and under appropriate instruction from the court. The appellate court reasoned that in this case, there was clear evidence in the record 
from which the jury reasonably could have concluded that Sergeant Christos was acting within the scope of his employment and was not engaged in personal frolic when he'd served the summons upon the defendant. Sergeant Christos was on duty and wearing his uniform, and on the basis of that fact, the jury reasonably could have concluded that his decision to accompany Officer Broad was made in his official capacity as a police officer and Officer Broad's supervisor. As Officer Broad was not in uniform and Sergeant Christos believed that because he would be readily identifiable, there would be no question as to who was taking the action. Accordingly, the appellate court concluded that the state offered sufficient evidence from which the jury reasonably could have concluded that Sergeant Christos was acting within the scope of his employment. Second claim here, the defendant specifically claimed that the trial court's failure to respond adequately to the jury's request for clarification deprived the defendant of a right to a fair trial. According to the defendant, the jury needed to be instructed on the law governing police discretion to issue and serve a summons upon an individual who has not yet been arrested. In response, the state argued that the defendant implicitly waived this claim. In the alternative, the state argued that the trial court did properly instruct the jury on the elements of the charge. There are some additional facts. At trial, the court provided the following instruction to the jury regarding the charge of assault on a public safety officer. Element one, assault of officer. The first element is that the person allegedly assaulted was a reasonably identifiable public safety officer. The standard is whether a reasonable person under the same circumstances should have identified the other person as a public safety officer. In determining this, such facts as whether the other person wore a uniform, whether he identified himself or so showed his badge or other identification, or the manner in which he acted and conducted himself, are all relevant to your decision of whether that person was reasonably identifiable as a public safety officer. It is irrelevant whether the public safety officer was officially on duty at the time of the attempted arrest as long as he was identifiable as a public safety officer. Element two, in the performance of his duties. The second element is the conduct of the defendant occurred while the public safety officer was acting in the performance of his duties. The phrase, in the performance of his official duties, means that the public safety officer was acting within the scope of what he is employed to do, and that his conduct was related to his official duties. The question of whether he was acting in good faith in the performance of these duties is a factual question for you to determine on the basis of the evidence in the case. Element three, intent to prevent the performance of his duties. The third element is that the defendant had the specific intent to prevent the public safety officer from performing his lawful duties. A person acts intentionally with respect to a result when his conscious objective is to cause such a result. Element four, by certain means. The fourth element is that the defendant threw or hurled or caused to be thrown or hurled any bodily fluid, including, but not limited to, saliva, at Christos. In summary, the state must prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that one, the defendant assaulted a public safety officer, two, in the performance of his duties, three, with the intent to prevent the performance of his duties, and four, by means of throwing or hurling or causing to be thrown or hurled any bodily fluid, including but not limited to saliva, at Christos. During its deliberations, the jury wrote a note requesting clarification from the court with regard to the charge of assault of a public safety officer. They asked, can we have clarification as to when an officer's duties end? 
The court informed informed both the state and defense counsel of the existence of the note and after discussing its contents, all parties agreed that the jury charge as given by the court could not be expanded upon or embellished. The court responded to the request by explaining to the jury, the answer lies in your deliberations. That's a factual finding that you will deliberate upon. There are a few things that can assist you in that, the testimony of the individuals involved and the court's jury charge to you. You work within that framework, within that context, and through your deliberations, you will arrive at an answer to that question. The appellate court here first agreed with the state that the defendant implicitly waived his claim of instructional error. As previously mentioned, unpreserved claims of instructional error are reviewable under Golding unless they have been induced or implicitly waived by the defendant. A defendant has waived his instructional error claim if he has failed to take exception with or object to the instructions at issue and also has acquiesced in the court's use of the instructions after having the opportunity to review them. In this case, the appellate court stated that it was clear that the defendant had implicitly waived his claim, as the record showed that the defense counsel had an opportunity to review the jury's instructions and did not object to them. He agreed that the instructions given were sufficient, and after the jury sent a note requesting clarification, he agreed with the court's decision to not further charge the jury on that issue court having concluded that the issue was one that the jurors had to deliberate on and reach themselves. For those reasons, the appellate court concluded that the defendant had implicitly waived his instructional error claim. The appellate court then addressed the defendant's claim that he was entitled to a new trial because the court's jury charge required reversal as plain error. As established previously in this opinion, that doctrine consists of two prongs. The defendant must demonstrate that the claimed error is both so clear and so harmful that a failure to reverse would result in a manifest injustice. In this case, the first prong of the plain error doctrine regarded whether the trial court's decision not to inform the jury that the law of arrest required the police to apply for a warrant before going to the defendant's home to confront him was so clear an error that a failure to reverse the judgment would result in clear injustice. The defendant's claim in this regard was dependent on his assertion that if the jury was instructed as to the law of arrest, there is a reasonable possibility that the jury would have concluded that Christos was not performing lawful duty and would have acquitted. But after considering the entire record, the appellate court concluded that no such possibility existed. The appellate court noted its conclusion earlier in the opinion whether a police officer had a lawful authority to conduct an arrest or serve a summons was irrelevant to the question of whether that officer is acting in the performance of his duties. The appellate court reasoned, therefore, that no clear error occurred here because even if the court provided this instruction to the jury, it would not have changed the question before the jury or the factors that the jury could consider in determining whether Sergeant Christos was acting in good faith in the performance of his duties. Accordingly, the appellate court concluded that the defendant was not entitled to relief under the doctrine of plain error. It was a long case, but in the case of State versus Mansfield, all judgments were affirmed. And finally, we've reached our last case. We stay in the appellate court, State versus Cayum. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. AC 42456, Judge Lavery, here are your facts. 
On April 12, 2017, Torrington police officer Matthew Faulkner went to 356 Midian Avenue in Torrington to execute a search warrant following an investigation regarding possible drug sales being conducted from Unit 1 North. This is the apartment of someone named Oscar Pugh. Faulkner surveyed the residence for approximately one hour. During that time, two people separately arrived at Pugh's apartment but departed quickly. Faulkner also saw the defendant arrive in a dark gray Infiniti sedan bearing Massachusetts license plates, which the defendant had rented from the Hertz Rental Company. The defendant had rented cars from Hertz for 63 days during the period from January 2017 until his arrest in that April, with the rentals costing between $2,500 and $2,600. Officer Faulkner had regularly observed the defendant at Pew's apartment over these preceding months. Additional police arrived approximately one hour after Faulkner began his surveillance. They executed a search warrant and detained the defendant and Mr. Pugh. The defendant eventually admitted that he had narcotics in his front pockets, and Faulkner proceeded to search. Inside, Faulkner found $267 in small bills, seven wax folds of heroin, and two dubs of crack cocaine. The police did not find any drug paraphernalia on the defendant or in his rental car, but a canine officer alerted on the car's trunk and door. The police also searched Pew and they found six wax folds of heroin and $2 in his pockets and a single dub of crack cocaine in his sock. 17 dubs of crack cocaine in between the couch and cushions where Pew was seated, along with various items of drug paraphernalia such as crack pipes and cut straws and a handwritten ledger documenting narcotics sales. Pew admitted that the narcotics found on his person were his and that he was a heavy user, but he denied that other narcotics in his apartment belonged to him. Other than the $2 found on Pew's person, no other money was found in the apartment. The defendant was charged by way of substitute information with one count of conspiracy to sell narcotics and two counts of possession of narcotics with intent to sell. The defendant was also charged in a Part B information with having twice been convicted of the sale of narcotics. The defendant pleaded not guilty, elected to a jury trial on August 16, 2018. A jury of six found the defendant guilty on all three counts. Later that day, he pleaded guilty to the two Part B counts. On November 9, 2018, the court sentenced the defendant to 20 years incarceration, suspended after 12 with five years of probation. On appeal, the defendant makes two claims. One, the trial court violated his due process rights by shifting the burdens of proof and persuasion to him to prove that he had a legitimate source of income. And two, the trial court erred by allowing impermissible expert opinion on testimony regarding his intent to sell. Let's go to our first claim. The appellate court first addressed the defendant's claim that the trial court violated due process by shifting the burdens to him. The defendant specifically argued that the court erred by letting the state present evidence that he had no reportable wages, thereby suggesting that he earned a living selling drugs and thus placing the burden on him to prove that he had a legitimate source of income. In response, the state argued that the defendant's challenge to the disputed testimony presented an evidentiary issue rather than a constitutional one and that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in determining that the probative value of the evidence of the defendant's lack of income was not outweighed by its prejudicial effect. There are some additional facts to consider. At trial, 
Pugh testified that he had known the defendant for more than one year and that the defendant had told him that he needed a place to sell drugs. Pugh further testified that in the year preceding their arrests, the defendant would come by his apartment every few days and he gave Pugh a reduced price for the drugs that Pugh used in exchange for using the apartment. Pugh saw the defendant sell drugs in his apartment but never saw the defendant use any drugs himself. After the first day of evidence, defense counsel informed the court that he objected to the state's anticipated presentation of testimony from David Ricciuti, a representative from the Department of Labor. After defense counsel questioned the relevance of such testimony, the prosecutor responded that the state intended to call Ricciuti to testify that the defendant had no reportable wages for the relevant time period prior to his arrest. In response, the defendant preliminarily argued that such evidence was irrelevant, not probative of any issues in the case, prejudicial, and might play on certain biases that people hold, implicit biases as well. The court informed the parties that it would entertain argument on the issue the following morning, and the prosecutor stated his intent to rely on State v. Perry, 58 Connecticut Appellate 65, in support of the admissibility of Ricky Udy's testimony. The next morning, defense counsel did not argue that the evidence was irrelevant. Instead, he stated that his objection was primarily an evidentiary objection based on the expected testimony being overly prejudicial and more prejudicial than probative because it did not demonstrate an imminent financial burden on the defendant. Defense counsel argued that suggesting that someone is more likely to commit a crime because they do not have a job inappropriately play, plays on biases that people may have and fits into a stereotype and runs the risk of arousing the jury's potential prejudices and implicit biases. Defense counsel conceded that the issue was not of a constitutional magnitude, although he did argue that admitting the evidence would also shift the burden to the defendant to have to rebut the evidence, which would be impermissible or improper. In response, the prosecutor argued that when considered with the other evidence, specifically the facts that the defendant had spent several thousands of dollars on rental cars and had narcotics in his pocket, the evidence concerning his lack of reportable wages was more probative than it was prejudicial. In particular, the, the prosecutor argued that Rick Udy's testimony coupled with, coupled with the other evidence would permit the jury to infer that the defendant's otherwise unexplained wealth came from drug trafficking. The court, relying on the Perry case, overruled the objection, reasoning that Ricky Udy's testimony was not simply evidence that the defendant does not have great resources. It's some evidence that he doesn't have a visible source of income, and yet he has funds to expend. On direct examination, Ricky Udy testified that the defendant did not have any wages in either 2016 or 2017 that were reported to the Department of Labor. Ricky Udy acknowledged, however, that some people have under-the-table jobs for which the department would have no record. He also admitted on cross-examination that income from self-owned businesses, social security disability, rental properties, and lottery winnings are not reportable. The trial court's ruling on evidentiary matters will be overturned only upon a showing of a clear abuse of the court's discretion. Court here cites State v. Rosa, 104 Connecticut Appellate, 374. Moreover, the trial court must determine whether the adverse impact of the challenge evidence outweighs its probative value. In this case, 
the defendant argued that the Perry case limited the admissibility of evidence relating to financial condition and employment status to the issue of motive, and that the record showed that the state did not proffer Ricky Udy's testimony for that purpose, and therefore Ricky Udy's testimony had no probative value. Furthermore, the defendant argued that the admission of Ricky Udy's testimony impermissibly placed a burden on him to prove that he had a legitimate source for the money that the state proved he had in his possession or had recently spent. The appellate court wasn't persuaded. It began noting that defense counsel conceded that his objection to the proposed testimony was evidentiary in nature rather than one of constitutional magnitude. Defense counsel objected to the proposed testimony only on the ground that it was more prejudicial than probative and, although he argued briefly that admitting that testimony would shift the burden of proof and persuasion, he did not suggest that doing so would violate due process. Moreover, this court previously has held that evidence of a defendant's financial condition or employment status is admissible on purely non-constitutional evidentiary grounds, citing Perry and Rosa. The appellate court found the defendant's attempt to turn his evidentiary claim into a constitutional one by arguing that the admission of Ricky Udy's testimony concerning his lack of reportable wages violated his due process rights by unconstitutionally shifting the burden was unavailing, reasoning that Simply putting a constitutional tag on a non-constitutional claim will no more change its essential character than calling a bull a cow will change its gender. Therefore, it reviewed the defendant's evidentiary claim concerning the admission of the testimony for an abuse of discretion. As to the merits of the defendant's evidentiary claim, the appellate court concluded that the defendant misread Perry and that his reliance on it was misplaced. The appellate court clarified that in Perry, this court did not state that evidence of lack of employment is relevant only to motive, but instead states that in that case it was relevant to motive. The appellate court found no reason why such evidence could not be relevant to other issues such as intent or, as in this case, to assist the jury in determining whether the defendant was actually engaging in the conduct constituting the crime. The appellate court reasoned that the fact that the defendant in this case had access to money despite having no reportable wages, combined with the other evidence presented, made it more likely that he was engaged in drug trafficking to procure that money, and that evidence tends to make a fact more likely is all that is required to make the evidence relevant. Accordingly, the appellate court found that Ricky Udy's testimony did have probative value. Moreover, the appellate court concluded that the evidence was not unduly prejudicial, the appellate court noted that although evidence of a defendant's chronic poverty may improperly arouse the emotions of the jurors in certain circumstances, it recognizes a distinction between evidence of chronic poverty and evidence of unemployment as at a relevant time, as even a well-to-do person may be unemployed at times. The appellate court reasoned that in this case, the state presented evidence of the defendant's lack of reportable wages only from the year prior to his arrest through the time of his arrest. Ricky Udy's testimony was very brief, and he conceded both on direct and on cross that the defendant could have had sources of income other than drug trafficking that would not have been reported. Ricky Udy's testimony was not presented in a manner that improperly would have aroused the emotions of a juror or invoked any feelings of bias, whether explicit or or implicit. For those reasons, the appellate court agreed with the state that the trial court acted within its discretion when it admitted Ricky Udy's testimony concerning the defendant's 
lack of reportable wages. Furthermore, the defend the appellate court noted that even if it was to assume that the trial court abused its discretion, the error would have been harmless. In order to establish reversible error on an evidentiary impropriety, the defendant must prove both an abuse of discretion and a harm that resulted. But when an improper evidentiary ruling is not constitutional in nature, the defendant bears the burden of demonstrating that the error was harmful. The court here cites State v. Alexis, 194 Connecticut Appellate, 162. In this case, the appellate court found that the defendant failed to meet his burden of demonstrating that the admission of Ricky Udy's testimony concerning his lack of reportable wages was harmful. First, the case against the defendant was strong. Pugh testified extensively about the arrangement he had with the defendant regarding his apartment. The state also presented evidence that drug paraphernalia was found in the apartment, but none was found on the defendant or in his rental car. Moreover, the state presented evidence that the defendant had $267 on him in small denominations, that he had seven wax folds of heroin, two dubs of cocaine, and that he had spent approximately $2,500 on rental cars in the months leading up to his arrest, and that a canine officer twice had alerted on the defendant's rental car, indicating a residual odor of narcotics. The state therefore presented sufficient evidence that the jury reasonably and independently could have used to find the defendant guilty of all three charges. Second, Ricky Udy's testimony was of negligible importance to the state. As previously discussed, the state had a strong case, and the prosecutor referred to Ricky Udy's testimony only once during closing and not at all on rebuttal. Third, the defendant had ample opportunity to cross-examine Ricky Udy. In fact, Ricky Udy testified that there were several different ways of income being non-reportable to the department. Accordingly, the defendant had failed to satisfy his burden of proving that it was more probable than not that the admission of Ricky Udy's testimony substantially affected the verdict. On our second claim, the admission of impermissible expert opinion testimony, the appellate court next turned to this claim. The defendant specifically argued that the court impermissibly permitted the state's expert, Scott Flockhart, a detective in the New Milford Police Department, to opine on the ultimate issue of the case, whether the defendant intended to sell narcotics. In response, the state argued that the prosecutor elicited testimony from Flockhart concerning only general factors that he would consider when deciding to charge a person with possession of narcotics with intent to sell. The state further contended that such testimony was proper because the prosecutor did not ask specifically for Flockhart's opinion as to whether or not the defendant possessed the narcotics with the intent to sell them. We have some additional facts on this claim as well. During trial, the state presented the expert testimony of Flockhart, who testified about his extensive experience throughout his career in dealing with narcotics. During his testimony, Flockhart explained that people who traffic narcotics frequently use rental cars to avoid detection. He also testified that narcotics traffickers often enlist intermediaries in an effort to insulate themselves from the activity. The prosecutor then attempted to ask Flockhart a hypothetical, asking him, if you came across a person with two $20 bags of crack cocaine and seven bags of heroin, would you be able to say whether that person possessed those drugs to use or possessed them with an intent to sell them? The defense counsel objected to this question on the ground that it went to the ultimate issue. Outside of the jury, defense counsel argued that the hypothetical mirrors the facts of the case so closely 
that essentially the witness was being asked to give an opinion on the ultimate issue in the case. The court stated that the question as phrased came too close to asking this expert as to whether he had an opinion as to whether someone who's exactly situated like the defendant was engaged in possession of narcotics with intent to sell. The court cautioned the state to ask the questions more generally. Shortly thereafter, the following exchange occurred between the prosecutor and Flockhart. Question. What type of factors do you look for? What type of things do you consider when deciding to charge a person with possession of narcotics with intent to sell? Answer. We look at how the drugs are packaged in quantities. We look for paraphernalia. If someone is an addict, they are most likely going to have some type of paraphernalia on them. Question. Well, in your experience, do addicts generally or are they ever far from their paraphernalia? Answer. Usually not. No. Question. As to how it's packaged, what are you looking for specifically? Answer. Whether it's broken down to smaller quantities and smaller bags. Question. Smaller quantities would mean what regarding that decision-making process? Answer. Would lead towards the possession with intent to sell because usually how it's broken up for street-level distribution. Question. What else would you look for? Answer. You would take a look at the person's hygiene, track marks on their arms, and if they're going to be getting dope sick. Question. What about money? Is that a consideration at all? Answer. Yes. Question. Could you tell the jury how that would weigh in? Answer. Most addicts, when they go to buy their drug of choice, usually they go with an amount of money to buy a certain amount of that drug. If they have $100 on them, they aren't going to go and buy just $20 worth. Question. Yes or no? Well, if you found a large amount of money on a person versus a negligible amount of money, how would that factor into your decision? Answer. Most addicts aren't going to have a large amount of money. Question. And what about the denominations of money? Would that factor into your decision at all? Answer. Yes. Defense counsel did not object to any of the questions asked in this exchange. Following cross-examination, the prosecutor elicited additional testimony from Flockhart in which Flockhart testified that he does not focus on a single factor when deciding whether to charge a person with possession of narcotics with intent to sell, but rather that he looks at all of these things in the aggregate. Standard of review here. An expert witness ordinarily may not express an opinion on an ultimate issue of fact, which must be decided by the trier of fact, but experts can, however, sometimes give an opinion on an ultimate issue where the trier, in order to make intelligent findings, needs expert assistance on the precise question on which it must pass. Citing Hodges versus Commissioner of Corrections, 187 Connecticut Appellate 394. Fun fact, that's a Dan Lage case. That was my case. I hated that I lost that case. Anyway, moreover, a trial court has broad discretion in admitting expert testimony concerning the sale of illicit drugs, citing State versus Nelson, 17 Connecticut, 556. Let's go to our holding and take this podcast home. In this case, the appellate court agreed with the state that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in admitting Flockhart's testimony during trial. Flockhart's testimony concerned only general factors that he would consider in whether deciding to charge a person with possession with intent to sell, including general behavior of drug users and traffickers. For example, he testified that drug users usually do not have large sums of money and they are never far from their paraphernalia. Flockhart also testified that based on his experience, traffickers will often break down their narcotics into smaller packages to make distribution easier. 
Moreover, following defense counsel's objection, the prosecutor did not ask Flockhart for his specific opinion about whether the defendant possessed narcotics with intent to sell. Flockhart, therefore, was never expressed his opinion on the ultimate issue of whether the defendant intended to sell narcotics. Accordingly, the appellate court concluded that the trial court did not abuse its discretion when it allowed Flockhart's testimony. Further, furthermore, the appellate court noted that even if it were to assume there was an abuse of discretion here, the defendant again failed to show harmfulness. The improper admission of opinion testimony that answers a question that a jury should have resolved for itself is not of constitutional significance and is a type of evidentiary error. The testimony is deemed to have answered a question that was solely for the jury's determination. The burden would then be on the defendant to show that the admission more probably than not affected the outcome of the verdict. The court cites State v. Wright, 47 Connecticut Appellate, 559. Here, the state presented ample evidence independent of Flockhart's testimony from which the jury reasonably could have concluded that the defendant intended to sell narcotics in his possession. As previously observed, Pugh testified extensively. Faulkner also corroborated Pugh's testimony. Moreover, the state presented evidence that the defendant had spent all this money on rental cars. Remember, we discussed this. There was $267 found on him. Uh, although the defendant argued that Pugh should be discredited because he was a compromised witness, witness credibility is solely the function of the jury, and it was well within the jury's province to find Pugh credible. For those reasons, the appellate court concluded that the defendant failed to meet his burden, proving that the admission of Flockhart's testimony more probably than not affected the verdict and was harmful. And so in the case of State versus Kayum, I hate to say it, but I have no problem with this opinion. I think it was the right one. The judgment was affirmed by the appellate court. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode to help us all kick off 2021, especially here on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast where we read the cases so you don't have to. I'm Dan Lage. Happy New Year. I hope 2021 is a healthy, happy, and safe one for all of you. I'll see you online, in the streets, or at the courthouse. Take care, everyone. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral's stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released and to give us a five-star rating. You can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law.
Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.